From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line. If you are outside of North America at eight three at uh, excuse me at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, you can always send us an email open line at ewtn.com, or you can uh, text your question. Text the letters ewtn to five five zero zero zero. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Monday, from Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, Father John Trujillo, how are you? Fine, how are you? Terrific, thanks. So do they... Uh, do they uh, send the faculty out on the weekends to cover parishes there in uh, at the Mount? Uh, well, some of us uh, do go out. Uh, a couple of priests help out at Fort Detrick and uh, Camp David. Some help in parishes in Virginia, um, my diocese, Harrisburg. I was in uh, New Jersey this weekend helping my classmate, Father Briganti, uh, in did his you, parish. Did you and don the rose vestments? <laughs> I wore I wore the rose vestments, yes, and uh, then he um, he sort of embarrassed me because it's my 60th birthday this week. So he surprised me with a cake with all these candles that we needed a fire permit for. 62. It's a good year. Yes, very good year. <laughs> and he was just made vice rector of um, the Josephinum. I heard week. that. I heard that. And our call screener Matt Gubensky, who's a seminarian for the diocese of Birmingham and Alabama, is absolutely terrified. So, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> at any rate, um, we got a question here from John. It's actually kind of a two-parter. Um, right. Uh, he says, "I understand that the Catholic Church teaches that the Mass is an unbloody sacrifice. If that's true, it prompts two questions for me." And he says, "One, given Hebrews." Chapter 9, verse 22, how can an unbloody sacrifice be propitiatory? And secondly, how can an unbloody sacrifice result in the presence of Christ's actual blood in the Mass? Okay, well, that's, those are very good questions. Uh, when we use the phrase unbloody sacrifice, what we're saying there and what the Church is saying is that uh, Jesus' blood is not... Uh, reenacted, it's it's uh, he, his blood was actually shed on Good Friday, 
and we do not see the, the accidents, the visible, tangible signs of, of blood are not visible. But the substance of his precious blood, the substance of his uh, precious body are there. And that's what we call transubstantiation. So his real body and blood are there. He doesn't die again. This is the one and same sacrifice he made on Good Friday. So his blood was really and truly uh, shed on the cross. And so every Mass is an unbloody in the sense that you do not see, all right? We don't taste uh, blood, uh, but it is his real blood. And it's not a duplication. It's an extension of what he did on Good Friday and at the Last Supper as well. And so when we use the term unbloody, it just means that you don't see something that looks gory up there on the altar. But he did say, this is my body, this is my blood, and we have to take him at his word. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Kate is watching us on YouTube, and she says, When is the psalm prayer prayed in the Liturgy of the Hours in the psalmody? In our morning group, we skip over it, and I'm too embarrassed <laughs> to ask anybody why we skip it. Well, <laughs> we skip it here too at the seminary. Uh, it's optional because the the standard, or we call the typical edition, which is in the Latin, does not have the psalm prayer. Uh, those those were added in the English translation, and uh, because it's optional, most religious communities, uh, like Dominicans, Franciscans, the Capuchins, and so forth, uh, or like us, diocesan clergy, what we do at the seminary, we typically uh, omit it, and that's because it is a an option. Uh, when you're praying it privately, you're absolutely allowed to pray it. Uh, it's there. Um, some people, when they pray morning or evening prayer as a group in church, will, will pray it, but um, here at the seminary, and I know most priests uh, follow that standard that in the Latin typical text, it's not present, therefore it's optional. Yeah, I don't do it either. I feel better about it now. Um, <laughs> 833-288-EWTN. You, you, you say like 15 seconds, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, here's, here's a great question. Here's somebody who was listening at the beginning of the program, Father. Lulu is watching on YouTube, and she wants to know what's the definition of a seminarian. What do they do? <laughs> That's what I'd like to know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We'll make sure to play this over the loudspeaker. Oh, the they're already listening. I know, that, I know they are. <laughs> A seminarian is a, um, a man studying for the priesthood, and uh, I was what we call a lifer, meaning I went into high school seminary. So I had 12 years of seminary formation, and I had high school seminary, college seminary, and then major theology seminary. Today, there's all, I don't think there's any, there's any high school seminaries left in, in the United States. So we still have some college seminaries. Most of the guys here at Mount St. Mary's uh, were not a college seminary. Uh, so we're a major theologate, so it's typically four years of theology. We also have two years of pre-theology, where guys learn some uh, philosophy. And now with the propedeutic year uh, that has been required by Rome and the Ratio Fundamentalis, we're now looking into adding that uh, component as well, where guys would come in uh, and prepare uh, for uh, seminary studies by just getting acquainted with seminary life in general, uh, learning you know, how to pray the office, living a community. So it's sort of like a, an introduction, a preparatory uh, entrance into seminary life itself. But uh, in the Protestant tradition, they call it divinity school. We don't call it that because it's more than just school. It's more than academics. They learn theology, yes, 
but it's also formation at the, at the four uh, we call the four dimensions. There's the human formen- human dimension. Uh, there's the spiritual. Uh, there's the intellectual, and then there's the pastoral. Yet we oftentimes send our married folks into their vocation with a meeting with the pastor and a weekend retreat. <laughs> well, <laughs> pre-Cana. <laughs> and it's something that, you know, the guys are preparing, you know, like I said, anywhere from 6 to 12 years for a lifelong commitment. And in, in matrimony, you know, uh, if, if they're supposed to have pre-Cana, and most dioceses require at least nine months uh, uh, heads up preparation, but it is. I mean, obviously, it would be. Not, it would not work out for us to demand uh, ten to twelve years preparation for someone to get married. Uh, it, it just, you know, it, it's it's not practical. <laughs> Standing up for the married folk, I appreciate it. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Um, uh, Steve asks, growing up in the 1980s, I remember infant baptisms regularly occurring during the Sunday Mass, but I've not seen one in the past 20 years or so. It seems they are always private ceremonies now. Was there a change uh, Was there a change the Church made to its preference on how and when infant baptisms occur? No. Uh, the, it's an option, which is up to the pastor, uh, and, as well as the parents. I was a pastor for 16 years, and I always made it available if a, if a family wanted to have their baby baptized at Mass. Um, but I also reminded them if they have it in the afternoon, uh, it's not really private, it's a public event, um, but uh, it's a little bit easier on the baby because if you bring the baby into Mass, uh, you know, you're going to get, it's going to be, the baby usually is crying and you got people giving that dirty look because you're adding maybe 10 more minutes to the Mass and they have to feed the baby, change the baby. Uh, and then because I had another, I had two masses, one in Marysville, one in Duncannon, I didn't have a lot of time. So uh, we had to make sure the mass was within the hour allotted. So if it was in the afternoon, we had a lot more time. And uh, I think most peop- more people were going that way. Even before the, the COVID, people were moving more towards having a baptism outside of mass. But it's still an option that you can have it at Mass. It's done just a little bit differently. You you do the first part asking the question, what do you ask of God's church, baptism, what name have you given this child, and then the anointing. But then after the gospel homily, then you do the baptism rite itself. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, if you're listening to EWTN's Open Line on an AM-FM radio station across the United States, say a prayer for those good folks that are operating that station. 90% of the time, it's folks that really had no radio experience at all. They were simply heeding the call of Mother Angelica to 
uh, evangelize through the radio airwaves. And the electric company in their hometown doesn't care how good the message is. They expect them to pay their bills. <laughs> so they are worthy of your support, and we suggest that you support them. And also, if you're not listening because you don't have an AM, FM radio station that's carrying EWTN programming in your area, uh, take a moment and pray about it and see if maybe God might be uh, coaxing you into uh, helping be part of an effort that would make that happen. If you want more information on that, uh, just email Steve at radio at EWTN.com. That's uh, Steve's attention at radio at EWTN.com. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. We've got uh, four open phone lines right now for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. First up today is Belinda in Louisiana watching us on uh, EWTN television today. Belinda, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hi, Father. Hi. I have a question. Um, my mother had talked to me not too long, well, about a month ago, and she had said, um, she had made a mention about um, angel of death, and I've never heard of it, and it kind of like, what the heck is that? Well, she had explained to me about a dream, or not a dream, her and my dad were traveling, and they had pulled over to go to sleep, and there was a, she, she was asleep when... She was awoken by a knock on the window. When she turned, she said there was an old lady, and she was, like, in a light blue, and she had wings, and she kept giving her the gesture of, follow me. She was waving her hand, follow her. And so she said that she rubbed her eyes, and she opened them up again, and the figure was still there, still doing that, and it freaked her out. So she turned over towards my father, who was still asleep, and she waited a little bit. When she turned back around, it was gone. And she says, I think that was the angel of death. And I said, what in the world is the angel of death? I never heard of it. So I wanted to ask, what is it? Is it even true or is it a myth or, you know, where and when did it come from? <laughs> uh, yes, um, it's more a euphemism. Uh, the, the Strictly the angel of death uh, is mentioned in the Old Testament during the time of the Exodus, uh, Passover night. It says the angel of death passed over the homes of those Hebrews who put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. Uh, that's the only time that we really see that that terminology, the angel of death. But being um, Sicilian Italian myself, I know my relatives would talk about, ooh, the angel of death is hovering over. It's just a way of describing the fact that someone is approaching death. But death is not uh, a personification. Uh, death is something that happens to us. And for the Christian, for the person who believes in the afterlife, it's merely a gateway into uh, e e eternal life. Um, but it's not a person per se. But I know, like in the Greek and Roman traditions, uh, pagan uh, traditions, they had a um, personification, uh, anthropomorphic uh, description of death. In fact, there has been a number of novels written, movies about death. I think one was called Joe Death uh, with uh, some famous actor in it. Uh, then there's some older uh, black and white movies. But uh, death is not an angel per se, so that you're not going to see it. Now that doesn't mean that God might not send an angel or a person's guardian angel may not. I think they pre help prepare someone who's in the state of grace get ready for uh, that um, you know, that big move from this world to the next. Because what death takes place, then we have a particular judgment. But the, I don't think there's a, you know, this angel of death as like you would have a, a Michael Ray, Rayfield Gabriel 
you know, that's his only job is to come and, and strike someone down. Uh, we don't have that belief. But I know in um, literature, you know, they, they'll, do, like, paint the Grim Reaper. That's something we do not believe in. Does that help, Belinda? Oh, yes, it does. Put the light good. on me. <laughs> All right, awesome. <laughs> Thanks for the phone call. So there's no faceless Franciscan with a sickle running around. Uh, maybe in Irondale. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Gabriella's in San Antonio, Texas. She's listening on Guadalupe Radio. Gabriella, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hello. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Um, my question was, if the devil knew that Jesus was the Son of God while Jesus was on Earth, um, yeah, that's the question. Uh, we really don't know what, what the devil knew, uh, because he certainly he, he tries to tempt him in the desert. Um, it's not something that he would be entitled to know, because Jesus obviously... Uh, his divinity is hidden from human eyes. Uh, he's both human and divine. Uh, we as human beings, we only saw his human nature, but his divine nature was always there present. That's how he affects all the miracles that he does and the big one himself of rising from the dead. Uh, so some theologians postulate that possibly the devil uh, didn't know he was the son of God, but in his hubris and pride, he still wanted to tempt him. And his goal would be to tempt his human nature because there's no way he could tempt the divine nature if he knew Jesus was truly God and man. Some theologians propose that that was the the issue of how Lucifer and one third of the angels actually, you know, got cast into hell. That they refused. Uh, they were given a glimpse that God would uh, create man, man would fall, and then He would send His Son to save us. And that they, they decided they would not worship uh, the the God Man or the Messiah. So we really don't know what the devil knew. Um, certainly he would know more than we do because he has infused knowledge. Uh, but the, the thing is that his, his pride was so audacious and arrogant that he would tempt uh, you know, the Savior and Redeemer of the world, whether he knew he was divine or not. Next stop is the great state of Florida. Marcy is in Florida listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Marcy, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hey, how are y'all? Fine. Okay, so I have a question. My friend and I were talking last night, and he said that he had used to be Catholic, and I asked him why he had left the Catholic Church, and he said just because it was too regiment, and uh, <laughs> he wasn't getting anything out of it, even though he'd been an older oh. boy in his lifetime. Uh. And so then I made the comment, I said, well, I don't think I could ever leave the Catholic Church because of the Eucharist. And he said, well, we have the Eucharist, too. And I came back and said, no, it's really not the same, because you think it's a symbol of Christ in communion. I said, whereas we believe it's actually presence of Christ. And I don't want to turn somebody off, you know, that was Catholic before, and they're like, well, that's just one of the reasons. But is there a better way of addressing that? Or, you know, I, I, I guess I don't really know if I, I just didn't want to come across as like, oh, well, we're better than you type thing. You know, yeah. that's not what I meant. Yes, no, I understand that, and uh, I appreciate that you would not want to, um, you know, uh, be pejorative in that sense. Rather than saying that we're right and they're wrong, what I like to say to people, especially when I, have a, when I had RCIE uh, in the parish as a pastor, it's not that we're right and they're wrong, it's that we have the fullness of truth because we have both sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Uh, we have the fullness of grace because we have all seven sacraments. 
So as Catholic Christians, we have everything that God has to offer, the church, the sacraments, um, the intercession of Mary and the saints. So our Protestant brethren, they certainly, what they have is true. It's just that it's not all of it. So it's not that we're right and they're wrong. It's just that we have all that is provided. That's why it's it's some, in the um, old days it was called, the church was called the Societas Perfecta, the perfect society. Not that the members were perfect, but the society itself, the church, is perfect because it perfectly provides everything we need. All seven sacraments, the fullness of divine revelation, and we have the, you know, the uh, hierarchy of the church, the pope, the bishops, and so forth. So in the Holy Eucharist, which, you know, for us is not merely a symbol, it's not just a mystical union, it is the real, true, substantial body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. We have apostolic succession, uh, the priests are validly ordained. So that's how I like to describe and say, look, what you're doing is that's why we change the name. We don't say, we don't use the word convert uh, anymore. We say someone is coming into full communion with the Catholic Church if they've already been baptized. So that means they're building upon what they had. We're not asking them to repudiate, you know, their their Protestant background. We're just saying that we're completing and and uh, uh, continuing it as as Catholic Christians. Does that help, Marcy? Yeah, and can I say one ask one more thing? Is it wrong when like if a Catholic goes to their their church to receive their communion? Because it's not yeah, it's, what it, we believe. Yeah, that's to be. right. Yeah. Um, a Catholic should not receive communion in their church, and the, the, likewise, a non-Catholic should not receive in our church. One, because if you go to their church, it's not a valid Eucharist, because they don't have the, the valid sacrament of holy orders or of holy Eucharist. And likewise, when someone comes to our church, we're asking that they be in full communion. In, the, in many traditions, non-Catholic traditions, they see the Eucharist, holy communion, as a means of achieving unity Whereas the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, by the way, too, like the Russian and Greek Orthodox, uh, they see Holy Communion as the final fruit of an already established union. That's why, uh, you know, when someone comes to communion, we want to be in the state of grace. We also want them to be accepting all that the Church teaches and practices as well. And, like, I would make the analogy, you know, if you were a Canadian citizen, but you were living here in the United States, um, if you wanted to run for public office, uh, you have to become a U.S. citizen, okay? Uh, if you want to, um, you know, vote in our elections, you have to vote. I mean, you have to become a citizen. Now, you can stay here, not be a citizen, and you're just as, you know, welcome and equal in terms of dignity and respect. But if you want to take the full plunge, become a citizen, then you have all the benefits as well as the obligations. Thanks so much, Marcy. We appreciate that phone call today here on Open Line Monday. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Get your Vulgate out. Karen wants to know, crushing the serpent's head. Is this Jesus or Mary crushing the head? Is it male or female? (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's a good question, too. (laughs) I can give you the Father Mitch answer if you want it. Um, well, do that, and I'll pick up from there. <laughs> it's, it's Jesus. Yes. Jesus is the one. In fact, you see that in the movie um, um, that Mel Gibson had, had, Passion had of Christ. done. The Passion of Christ, where Jesus steps on the snake. Now, in Christian art, typically, like Our Lady of Grace, Mary is stepping on the serpent, okay? Uh, that's because she gives birth to the Savior, will vanquish uh, the serpent, the devil. 
um, Mary herself, okay, she's not the Redeemer, she's not the Messiah, but she's the mother of the Redeemer and mother of the Messiah. She's the new Eve. And the translation that was done in Genesis 3, you know, where it says uh, when Eve is cast out of the Garden of Paradise with her husband, uh, Adam, uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman, when God, he said, to, and your offspring and his. So it's the change of pronouns that got some people confused. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next stop is the Motor City, Detroit, Michigan. Chris is in Michigan listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Chris, thanks for holding. You're on with Father John. Hey, Father John. Uh, if you could elaborate, we had a, a caller earlier that says, and asked the question, did Satan know who Jesus was? Um can you take a part two on that and talk okay. about the, the demons that that, that Jesus uh, called out? And they they said, you know, Son of God, we know who you are. Could you is that is that close to Satan, same person? Yes, uh, that's a good question. And uh, when they say we know who you are, um, again, the, the the jury's out theologically. Uh, what do they know? Uh, they say we know who you are, meaning uh, that he's obviously more than just a man, and uh, probably of of you know supernatural origin. Um, whether or not they knew that he is the second person of the Trinity, whether or not he knew that he was the God Man, uh, that wasn't spelled out. It just said we know who you are. Um, could obviously, have a, it could have been a ploy well, on their part to get info, huh? Well, that's it. I mean, you know, because the, the, the devil and all the demons are are liars. Uh, they're the sons of perdition and author of all lies. So, and, and remember, the devil tries to trip Jesus up with, with scripture quotes. So to what extent the devil and the demons know, we don't know. They weren't entitled to know everything, but they certainly knew that this wasn't just uh, an ordinary Hebrew guy from, from Nazareth. There was something special about him. you got to figure it's not a good strategy if you... If, you, if the devil knew who he was, why would you try to trip up the word with the word? <laughs> exactly. And, the, and Lucifer was the, was the most intelligent of all the angels. So it's not that he could ever actually credibly believe that he could overthrow heaven or he could defeat uh, the second person of the Trinity. But to what extent he knew who, what he knew about Jesus, we, we don't know. How's that, Chris? I, I like that. I like that you can't use the word. I've often thought that, too, uh, that he kind of just sets Jesus up to get slammed. So, <laughs> or, so, you know, to get himself slammed, I guess. So, yeah, that, that's good. All right. God bless. Thanks for the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Peter is in Seattle, Washington. He's listening on the EWTN app today. Peter, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Hello, Father Tregilio. Uh, I've Hello. been having conversations with uh, some Protestants talking about uh, the need to cooperate with God's grace in order to have salvation. 
and uh, some of them rebuff the idea of any cooperation, and they say that then you're really relying on yourself. And I think mm. they intend well, but uh, how would you go about explaining that man still has a role to play also? Well, that, that's a good uh, <clears throat> uh, question to ask, because obviously Pelagius, who was a heretic, and you know Augustine completely uh, condemned it, as well as uh, the whole church, believed that you could you could do um, merit good on your own, and you could earn your way to heaven. And St. Augustine and the Church says, no, any good we do has to be motivated and empowered by God's grace. Uh, since the fall of Adam and Eve, because of our wounded human nature, we need grace. It's not an option. We need grace. We need sanctifying grace in order to get to heaven. We need actual grace to actually do good here on earth. Now, grace always respects our free will, because that's how God made us. And God offers us uh, grace, but we have to freely accept it and cooperate with it. If he forced it upon us, then it wouldn't be grace. Grace is a gift freely given and must be freely accepted and cooperated with. Uh, Jesus never forced himself on any of his apostles. He invited them to follow him uh, in the same way that God invites us through grace to be his disciples. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Next stop is Atlanta, Georgia. Michelle is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Michelle, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much for you. What can we do for you? I am... So I was in church yesterday saying my prayers for the souls in purgatory, and I had a thought come in my head. What happens to the prayers that you say for souls that may be in hell that um, haven't made it to heaven, but they've never made it to purgatory either? <laughs> well, it's not a waste of your time. Although other people would think, well, geez, the, the, the prayers for people in hell can't do them any good. So what happens? Well, it's never a waste. It goes to what we call the treasury of merit, and then the church can dispense that uh, to people who are in need, whether it's a soul in purgatory or someone here on earth. Uh, we can. It, it works. I mean, it, um, uh, indulgences are part of that process. So if you pray for someone that you hope is in purgatory, um, and they're if they're in heaven, they don't need any help. If they're in hell, they can't get any help. Well, God then redirects that to someone who needs it. So it's it's not a waste of your time or effort. How's that, Michelle? Perfect. Almost like a savings account. <laughs> <laughs> we just want to be careful. It doesn't sound like Pelagianism. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Uh, we head next to the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Laura is watching us, rather, on YouTube. Laura, you're on with Father John. Hello. Um, my question is about the Marian apparitions. I have a lot of Protestant friends and few Catholic, but even the Catholic ones are skeptical about Marian stuff. And I was wondering, as Catholic or as priest, is it good to promote Garabandal, Medjugorje, Fatima? Uh, well, uh, first of all, uh, the Church makes it very 
makes a very important distinction that Marian apparitions are part of private revelation, which means you as a Catholic do not have to believe in them to be a good Catholic, but they do have certain apparitions which have been sanctioned by the Church that are worthy of our uh, interest and, and, and uh, um, honor. And so like Fatima and Lourdes are, are just a few of those that have been officially sanctioned by the Church. Others, the jury's still out. Some, it was considered uh, not of supernatural origin or maybe something even, even worse. But because an apparition is not officially approved does not mean it is de facto. The only other option is that it's the devil or that the people who have seen these things are fakes. Some people jumped to that conclusion. And uh, there was a father, Fred Jelly, a Dominican, who used to teach here at the seminary, and then a father, Fred Miller, who uh, used to teach here and is now at the Seton Hall uh, University in, in um, New Jersey, they both made it very clear that there are other options besides either this is of divine origin, Mary truly appeared, or that this was a fake by the, the seers or the devil involved. It could be a misinterpretation of something. It just means maybe there's not enough evidence. So whether it's Garamandal or Medjugorje, um, you know, you can privately believe in that, but if somebody doesn't, doesn't mean they're a bad Catholic. Even Fatima and Lourdes, I personally uh, encourage people to believe in Fatima and Lourdes, but I can never force that on someone. How's that? Yes, I guess I should have said, and also, I guess, how do you present it? But I guess you just let walk in faith and present it as you feel needed, I guess. Well, yeah, and it's, it's something that, again, if someone doesn't want to believe it, you can't, you can feel sad for them in a sense, because, you know, it's like, this is um, beautiful devotion to Our Lady, but it's not part of public revelation. That's why it's called private. Yeah, and it's and, and you made the point well, Father, that, that just because it hasn't been officially approved by the Church doesn't mean it doesn't have any merit, but there could be any number of reasons that it... Some of these oh, things yeah. were prophesied from the beginning that they would never be approved by the Church. That's right. And we've seen some, we've seen some situations with some visionaries in some of these unapproved locations where, you know, the original... You, you can't deny the conversions that have come through the things, but, you know, perhaps they were not approved for the things that we're seeing now that we couldn't have imagined down the road, huh? Absolutely. And, you know, there's that famous line from uh, Franz Werfel's book, uh, the um, Our, Our Lady of Lords. It was also in the movie. For those who believe no explanation is necessary, for those who do not believe none will suffice. Very good. Thanks, Laura. Great question today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Joel is in Toledo, Ohio, a first-time caller, listening on Annunciation Radio. Joel, you are on with Father Trujillo. Hey, Father. I have a question. What, do you, what does the Church say about gay dating and gay marriage? About gay dating? Yeah. yeah and gay marriage. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, we, we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. So just as you could not uh, have a um, polygamous marriage where you'd be married to more than one person, you can't have a gay marriage because it has to be one man, one woman who are capable of being married. Because if you've been married before, validly, and there's been no annulment and the pers other person is still alive, you know, you can't get married again. So it's not just, you know, that, that we single out one particular group of people. We're saying marriage itself is already defined by God. It's in the scripture. It's in the catechism. 
one man, one woman in a permanent, uh, faithful, and God-willing, fruitful union. And so, uh, again, it would be like the reason why we would discourage uh, gay dating would be the same reason why if you've got two married people who are married to somebody else, we don't want them dating, even if they got divorced, because without the annulment, you know, they should not be dating. So we want consistency across the board. Uh, next up is Barbara. She is in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Barbara, you're on with Father Trujillo. Thank you. Um, my question is about Pius V. Now, are they any part of the uh, Roman Catholic Church, or are they systematic? Uh, and um, why I'm asking, because there's someone that's going to be getting married, and they mm. think that Mass is valid and that the sacraments are valid, and I'm saying I don't believe so. Okay, well, uh, again, I want to make some good distinctions here. Uh, St. Pius V Society is a break-off from the Pope St. Pius X Society, which was formed by Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre after the Second Vatican Council. Uh, they, uh, Marcel Lefebvre, the Archbishop who passed away, uh, did, not want, uh, did not believe it was good to celebrate the Mass in the vernacular, so he kept to what we you know, used to call the extraordinary form exclusively. Um, so the Pius X Society broke from church when they when he when he consecrated five bishops without papal mandate. Later, then that excommunication was was rescinded. But the Pius V um, broke from the Pius X. Now their sacraments are valid; they have valid priests. The mass is valid, but it's illicit because they're not in full communion. They broke away. They are schismatic, uh, but they are valid sacraments. Uh, we just want. Uh, those Catholics who are in full communion, who are not schismatic, to go to their parish or to go to the you know Fraternity of St. Peter or the Institute of Christ the High Priest, you know, those groups that are, are fully recognized in the church and do celebrate uh, the traditional form. How's that? No, I, I'm still not real sure. Pius V, those yes. who go to Pius V here, uh, their mass is valid and their sacraments are valid? Yes, they are, because they're, they're real priests. Okay, okay. But you're that, not, we that, don't that, want, we, we, we're not encouraging people to go there, though, because they're schismatic. See, a schismatic is someone who doesn't recognize the authority of the Pope. Heretic is someone who denies a teaching of the Church. Oh, very good. Right. That helps me a lot, really. Does. Oh, terrific. Well, thank you, Barbara. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Walker is driving through the Republic of Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Walker, thanks for calling. You're on with Father John. Hey, Father. Uh, my question is the confusion of demons. You are talking about them early being liars. Are they the, the other part of the fallen angels that have fallen with Lucifer, or are they something entirely different, created by God. It was my understanding that Lucifer is not a creator, so I don't imagine he created them. I was just kind of wondering what their origin is. Okay, I'm glad you asked that. Lucifer was the ringleader, we want to give it a terminology, um, 
of the angels who rebelled against God. And so all the fallen angels became demons or devils. And the name is, inter, uh, you know, you could, it's sm with a small d. When you use a capital D, the devil, it usually refers to Satan or Lucifer. Okay? He goes by those, those names. Then you have minor demons. And, you know, if you read, like, the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, um, you know, he came up with some. And, you know, in the occult, they have, um, you know, uh, well, let's say in the scripture, we have Beelzebub, uh, the Lord of the Flies. We have Asmodeus mentioned in there. Um, so they, these are uh, high-ranking but lower uh, echelon uh, uh, demons in hell. Lucifer, or now the devil or Satan, he is the kingpin. And as Jesus said, he tolerates no mutiny. So he's the boss, you know, just like Putin, all right, and everybody else is beneath him. Is that good, Walker? Yeah, all the demons are essentially the other, the other part of the fallen angels. That's right. They're the one-third of the angels who uh, did not get into heaven. And then the other two-thirds, like Michael, Raphael, Gabriel, and everybody else, uh, got into heaven. So, yes, all the demons are former angels. Be sure to check out Mother Angelica Live Classics Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. This week, Mother explains how Jesus loved us before we even knew him. She proposes the question, what does it mean to know Jesus? That's Mother Angelica Live Classics Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN television and radio. Next up is Buster in Hartley, Texas, also listening on Guadalupe Radio. Buster, welcome to the program. Thank you. My question is this. My cousin's husband called me last night and told me that he'd gotten my grandmother and my daddy baptized in the Mormon church, and they've been dead a long time. And he, <laughs> he quoted he quoted that the, the scripture that says, what is bound on earth is bound in heaven. And I want to know, is there anything to that before I go over there and give him some penance? <laughs> oh, I, I like that terminology. Wow. <laughs> That's so Latin. <laughs> um, well, first of all, there is no way you can baptize the dead. Just like I cannot anoint a dead body. I can only anoint a living person. Uh, so uh, until they're actually... Uh, you know, dead in the sense that their soul has left the body. I can anoint someone. I can baptize someone. The Mormon have the Mormon Church has this idea of baptizing the dead, but there's just no way it can be done. Uh, so they can say whatever they want to say. I know people get nervous about joining ancestry because they say, "Oh, they're going to baptize all your your dead relatives." I say, "Well, <laughs> some of my dead relatives, <laughs> I don't think they would do them any good anyway." But uh, baptism is only uh, sacramenta sunt propter hominem. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas said, sacraments are for uh, man, the living. So you cannot give a sacrament to a dead person, whether they've been dead for an hour or for many years or centuries. So it, it's a concept that they have, but we, there's absolutely nothing to it. Um, now, sometimes they, they tell you that either to get your goat or they honestly believe that they can do it, but there's nothing happening. Uh, if you're not if you're not really baptized in baptism by by water the sacrament baptism by desire or baptism by blood all three are valid baptisms but if someone's not validly baptized and they're dead that's nothing you can do about it 
Thanks, Buster. We appreciate the phone call. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN. I'm going to remember that one for a long time. 833-288-3986. Eleanor is in La Mesa, Texas. The Republic of Texas coming in strong here in the uh, at the end of the program. Uh, this is a good question, Father John. Eleanor, you are on with Father Trujillo. Okay. Go right ahead, Eleanor, Father? with your question. Okay. Father, um, I was asking about the questions that I just uh, said about the demons. Yes. And, uh, well, there were demons here that, you know, people don't believe in them, but they do exist. Yes. And uh, my husband and me and my children were witnesses and other people of my family witnesses that too when he passed away. The thing is that um, uh, people, and then I got to see one. Uh, yeah, and I think I think uh, originally Eleanor wanted to know, Father John, why are there so many churches if there's only one God? Uh, well, there's only, I mean, there's one church that Jesus established, and he says, Thou art Peter upon this rock, Petros, okay, the Greek word, um, upon this rock, I, Jesus, will build my church. So the one church that's connected to Peter is the one that has the successor of St. Peter. So, you know, it, it, it's just simple logic that if Jesus said he was going to found his church on the rock of Peter, who's the successor, successor of St. Peter? The Bishop of Rome. And so the Catholic Church has been the, the church founded by Christ. Now, other churches have broken off in a sense, not completely and totally. That's why we say someone comes into full communion, so there's partial communion uh, in the other uh, Christian churches. But they broke off. Martin Luther broke away. Uh, Cramner, Swingley, Huss, okay? Um, they broke away. But the church that Jesus Christ founded on the Rock of Peter has been consistently um, present. And he says, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against her. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. Sally is in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, first time caller listening to EWTN radio today on Sacred Heart Radio. Sally, you're on with Father John. Yes, Father John. In a recent um, broadcast, they were someone mentioned about holding hands during the Lord's Prayer, mm-hmm. and you had said that we should have our hands clasped. And I was wondering, is there anything wrong with having your hands somewhat open or extended, um, lifting up as we do the, as we pray the Lord's Prayer? Yes, I've seen that done, and it's not the most uh, accurate gesture because, the, as it says in the general instruction of the Roman Missal, which is the book that tells the priest how to say Mass, uh, there's the red print, which is are the rubrics that tell us what to do, and then the black print which is are the words that has to be said. And in the general instruction, it refers to the gestures of the priest, the gestures of the people, the congregation. Now, the priest can do what we call the Oron's position, where he extends his hands out, okay? That's his proper uh, posture when he's saying most of the prayers, okay? There's a certain time when he puts his hands over the, uh, the chalice and the paten uh, at the epiclesis. Uh, there's other times when he actually has his hands folded, you can pray privately or in anything outside the sacred liturgy in any way you want. You can hold hands, you can have the Oran's position, but during Mass, 
we should be doing what the church is asking us to do because that was the whole thing of, of Exodus, as Pope uh, Benedict um, reminded us, uh, as Cardinal Ratzinger, in, in um, the Genesis, I mean, excuse me, in Exodus, when he told Moses, this is how you are to worship me. He gave explicit instructions. So God tells us, the church tells us, how to worship uh, in terms of the sacraments. Privately, you can do whatever you want, outside of Mass, before Mass, after Mass, but during Mass, we should be on the same page in, in that regard. And uh, so the holding of hands or the extending of hands is not what's uh, suggested in there. I'm not saying that people who do that are bad, they have bad intentions or malicious. Uh, some people told them they could do that. Uh, they were just not accurate. Dan is in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, listening on Holy Spirit Radio. Dan, just a couple minutes left with Father John. What's your question today? Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, faithful Catholic here. I just was wondering when I heard you speaking about the uh, uh, Lucifer and the demons and and all that. What what is there to keep that from happening again? Of what happening again? I don't of, mean of... with Lucifer. I, I don't mean with Lucifer and all. Yeah. I mean what would keep? What is there to keep the angels from rebelling? Oh. Again? Okay. That's good, because the, the, when Lucifer and the third of the angels went bad, they were not in heaven yet, okay? Once you're in heaven, you can never get out of heaven. Adam and Eve were not in heaven. They were in the Garden of Paradise. Lucifer, Michael, Raphael, Gabriel, they existed in some state or place, but not in heaven. And then when uh, two-thirds of the angels remained good, then they went to heaven. Lucifer and the other third went to hell, but they were not kicked out of heaven, uh, that was the, the, the test they were put, and we don't know exactly what it was. So the angels in heaven, even though Hollywood tries to make you think, I mean, it's so stupid and pathetic. They had one movie with um, John Travolta where he played Michael had gone bad. It can't happen, okay? Once you're in heaven, if you're a saint or you're an angel, you're never going to leave heaven. Never going to want to. <laughs> never going to want to, and you never can. Father John, would you leave us with a blessing? Absolutely. Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our uh, social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Monday. Back at it tomorrow, Father Wade Menezes is in the house talking faith, family, and fellowship on EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Until we get together then, God bless.